this my Bible? I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. It definitely is the only book we really need for sure. So last week we left with Tara having three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now Haran died, and Abram became the one that the Lord was going to use to give this covenant, this promise, this well, it, it was really it was really something. And I found that um, in fact I did not think about this until I studied this this year. The Lord had said to Abram, that never caught me before. The Lord had said, and then I thought, well, when did he say that? I kind of, when I was, uh, Genesis 12 was, um, God gave him this, and, and these were the instructions, and then verse 4, and Abram left. Like he was given it one day, and he left the next. But that's not the way it went. And I can see now why God had said to Abram, and when did he say it? Well, Stephen, remember Stephen? He's the one that told me in Acts 7, it, it's the story of Stephen that helped me to see that when Stephen was going to be stoned, before, before he, he died, boy, he stood up and he gave, he gave a presentation of the gospel, starting with Abraham. And um, in, this, in this story, uh, or in this testimony, in, in as he just projected the truth so strongly, he said that Abram was given this covenant promise, and he listened and obeyed, and it was credited to him as righteous. And I thought, well, you know what? He he was given that message, according to Stephen, he said, he was given the message before they even landed in Heron. So this was before, it was in last week's lesson, when Tara took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and his daughter-in-law and wife and son, and together they set out from Ur, of the Chaldeans. So sometime in there, God must have told him. Now, we don't know how long they stayed in Haran. They settled there. So we don't know how long, but why would God tell him that before? You know, so we don't know how old he was. We don't know how old he was, but right, um, we know he was 75 when he left. Why would God tell somebody way before? I think this is what God does when he's going to start a major move in us. He kind of like plants the seed and gets you thinking about it. And then, and then Abram had to decide, what am I going to do with this? I mean, you know, it's Yes, my wife is barren, and yet during this time of settling in Haran, I wonder if God used that time, because he never wastes a second, could he have used that time to get Abram to be prepared and ready to, to then leave and be obedient? I mean, there um. Ur of the Chaldeans, that was a rich, rich community. I mean, they're at, they're at the age now where they're very settled, they're very comfortable, they're at the age where that it's kind of like, oh, good, my, my big responsibilities are over. I mean, they never had children, but at the, yet, but yet they were in that middle age kind of setting. Think all of this, all of this put together. You know, he is thinking. All right, 
is God preparing me for this? Am I having this time to really process in my head what he's calling me to do? Because this is major. And it's very, uh, it's hard to, com- to comprehend because I don't have one child. And yet, it says, leave your people, your father's household. Go to the land. I will show you. I mean, they're just comfortable. Now they're going to have to move and they're never going to live in a home home again. It's always going to be a tent. And to make this kind of decision, I think they didn't need that time to really, are we going to listen and then believe and trust and obey and maybe they needed that time. So, I mean, maybe it's not that big a deal, but I, I, I just thought that when, when chapter 12 said the Lord had said to Abram, it, it gave me a time to think about and say, you know, God does do that sometimes to get us prepared and ready to do the mission when it's this major. So they did believe and they did listen and they did trust and they did obey. Now, when, when God said, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you. Did you notice the how many I wills? I mean, it was very clear that God said, I will do this, because th- this was such a a major thing with no children to think that that they will be a great nation and they will his name will be great and but the thing that got me was when he said I will bless those who bless you but whoever curses you I will curse I did a little search, and I, I am not a real history buff, but when it comes to biblical, I, it, it just proves itself. History is magnificent. It really is. And you learn so much from it. But when God said, I will curse those who curse you, and then you go back, and I'm going to take you back to the story of Esther. Remember when, when um, Haman he was so mad at Mordecai because he wanted everybody to bow down to him. You know, he was second to King Xerxes. And, and so he was really praying around in all his self-glory. And he wanted everybody to bow down, and Mordecai wouldn't do it. Well, that made him so mad that he went to King Xerxes and said, you know, for, I mean, astronomical amount of money. Um, if I give you this amount of money, would you just allow me to kill every Jew? Because you do know that when Abraham's nation started, I mean, that was the beginning of the Jews. That was the beginning of Israel. So, I mean, just watch. This makes so much sense, and God does what he says, because um, so Haman says, okay, how about, how about a king? Can I kill every Jew? That's why he knew he could get rid of Mordecai. And, and the king said, oh, you keep your money. He said, here, let me stamp your paper. Within 24 hours, Haman was dangling from the gallows. Yeah, that that really grabbed you. And then and then um, I went and and you know how in um, biblical times there were rulers, there were empires of the world. There was first the Babylonians, and then when they went down, then there was the Medes and Persian Empire, the Persian Empire, and then when they went down, then we have the Greek Empire. Now, when the Greek Empire was in power, apparently they, they decided that whoever was the ruler of the Greek Empire at that time, they didn't like this segment of Jews that lived in Palestine. They didn't like them, and they were, they were going to overhaul that town. And they also, 
they also went to their temple and desecrated it. And it wasn't soon after that happened, the Roman Empire took over. So the Persian Empire went down. Then when the Romans had had control of the world for 500 years, they, the under Titus, he, he didn't like Paul, and he had Paul beheaded. And he also had many other Jews killed, and he also destroyed, went and destroyed Jerusalem. And soon after that, Rome went down. I mean, these are empire, world empires that at the time, they didn't think that they would ever go down. And even, like I said, Rome was in control 500 years. I'm sure they never thought anything would happen to them. But you can't help but see when God said, you touch my people. It might not happen overnight. It might be years and years, but... I will, they will pay for that. Then, I didn't know this either. Apparently in 1492, Spain, the country of Spain, um, had an inquisition. Uh, it, it was called an inquisition against the Jews. And whatever that really meant, I didn't get into it. But what I did see is that this, this nation, this country of Spain, because of what they did, became a fifth-rated nation. I mean, they dropped so in their value and in their popularity and in their power. Okay, that was 1492. Well, then, of course, we know World War II when Hitler came on the scene and thought he was going to be the master of the world and he didn't like the Jews and the atrocities we know that just sickens us. But the day came when Germany fell and so did Hitler. And I think, oh my word, it's true. God said, those who cursed you, I will curse them. I mean, it was, it's just right there. Whoever curses you, I will curse them. I will, I will. And then I think today, you watch the news, and to me, this has helped me to be able to watch the news because, you know, you look at Hamas and, and they that group of people hates the Jews and, and, and they're rising up and they claim they're going to destroy Jews and take over Israel and all this kind of thing. And I'm looking at that now and I think, well, it might not be tomorrow, but guess what? They're, he, they're going down because God said. And that's such a comfort to know when he says, I will do something they think they're so powerful. Every one of these illustrations, they thought for sure they couldn't lose, but every one of them did. You go after the Jews and God's people. Then the next line, to me, really, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples. I mean, we've studied now how God dispersed all these people all through the world, you know, so all in different areas. But here we read, and all peoples on earth, this is, the, this is the covenant to Abraham, the promise to Abraham. This is the nation you are going to start. And this, under this nation, the Savior of the world will come. And if anybody chooses to believe in this Savior, so all peoples on earth will be blessed through you because your line, the nation that started from you, will save people if they're willing to believe it. It had to start somewhere. And then, uh, you know, I, I so enjoy um, taking Old Testament and then see how it carried through in, in Galatians chapter 3, how Paul used, used this very story. He, he's, he's writing, remember, to Gentiles. 
the Jew Paul is writing to these Gentiles because he is the apostle to the Gentiles and he is writing to them and he says this to them in the third chapter. Let me tell you about Abraham. You know, they probably don't know who Abraham is. But let me tell you about Abraham. He believed God. He believed things like he would be a he would be a nation and they didn't have any children. I mean, he believed the impossible. He trusted, he listened, he obeyed, and said he was then credited as righteous. Under understand then, Paul says. Because you know what Jews thought of Gentiles. He says, understand then that those who believe, and he's writing to them and he's saying, that means you, if you choose to believe, you too then, you will be called children of Abraham. I mean, I'm sure that they could believe what but when you believe because of Jesus, because that's what that verse in Genesis 12 really means, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, because that's Jesus. Jesus can save them no matter what they're Jew or Gentile. And then to watch Paul tell these Jew, these Gentiles that that if they believe, they can be engrafted and be a part of the family of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations. And then then Paul quotes Genesis 12. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That had been something to hear when they were reading this letter. That the gospel brings Gentile and Jew together in one family because of Jesus. So way back in Genesis 12, Paul is telling these Gentiles from Galatia that they can be included. And then then, um, I just love Revelation so much and so I thought okay I remembered in my mind somewhere there was this and sure enough in Revelation 5 picture this story John says I saw I saw someone sitting on the throne and he had a, a scroll in his hand I mean, we know it was God the Father, and he was holding the scroll, the title to planet Earth with seven seals on it. And John said, someone said, who is worthy to take this scroll and open the seals and begin, begin what we need to have begun so that this world can, can, Jesus can come back and this world can be changed from old to brand spanking new and we can have a new heaven and a new earth and, and Satan will be, be put into hell forevermore and, and all wrong will be righted. And I mean, but someone's got to start this. Someone's got to start the seven seals and then the seven trumpets and then the seven bowls of wrath. And so, John says, and no one was worthy. There was no one that came forward, no one on the face of this earth, no created being. No one was worthy to be able to go to the Father and take that scroll with the seven seals and begin, begin the process of what we've been promised. Then, oh, then John said, John, it's written in here that John wrote, I wept and I wept. And he wasn't just crying a little. I mean, he says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And why did you weep so? Because he knew that if no one started this this whole judgment and building a brand new heaven and new earth and 
and taking care of and, and taking care of Satan once and for all, and taking care of sin once and for all. If no one started that process, that means Satan won. That meant that the cross, you know, when we sing Jesus paid it all, that was all a joke. And so he was, he was just crushing. No, no, one start, no one's worthy to start this. And then, then I saw, then I saw a lamb, capital L. I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain. May we know that we will always, when we see Jesus, no matter when in all of forever, when we see him, he will always bear the mark to remind us that it is because of him we are there. So the lamb was, was there, and the lamb standing in the center of the throne, he was standing right there in the center, right by the father, and it was encircled by four living creatures and the 24 elders and it said and then he took the scroll he just with confidence took the scroll and from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and Everything broke in praise and worship. They had a brand new song they started to sing. Now listen to the song they sang. Brand new one says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. We just read it in Genesis 12. We just read, I will, I will, and you will be. And all of this, and then we're reading the last book of, of God's word, and it's exactly, it's exactly what God said. What a future we have, and we can be very confident because I will, I will, I will. And when he says it, he means it, and what a promise for us. That little line there, to me, spoke volumes. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for being the one. So now Abraham left. As the Lord had told him and Lot went with him, Abraham was 75. And he said, oh, and he took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Now, aren't you glad you know that, that the land of Canaan and how it became Canaan and, and really the kind of people that were living in Canaan? I mean, we just saw that, you know, I mean, everything started with Adam and Eve, and then, of course, then, you know, even with Noah and his, his um, sons and daughter-in-laws and that. But remember, when they came off the ark, even though the world had been purged, they were still sinners. And so it wasn't long before things just took off again, and we saw how Ham and then Cain, his son Canaan, and how that line, and how God cursed that line. And now the peoples of Canaan are all evil and non-believers of God, and it's full of evil. Pagans. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Now, to me, this is another thing that Abram and Sarah had to think about. Like, you know, they're in a country now that they feel like they're they're um, probably very much lonely in their beliefs because of the whole country of Canaan, that whole area is evil and certainly not believing in one God. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give you this land. 
that had to sound a little bit unreasonable too. I mean, they just had logic. They just had, you know, Abram and, and Sarai and Lot in their possessions and what they accumulated in Haran. But but now God says you're going to now your offspring will will this will be the promised land. This is the land I'm giving you. And he's looking at the multitude of evil in that in that land and thinking. I wonder how that's going to happen. But he is walking with God, and he just simply understands it, no, but believes and trusts and and listens and obeys. So, okay, I don't understand how or why or how, when it's going to happen, but if you say this land is going to be given to my offspring, the nation of Israel. You know, he doesn't know it's going to be called Israel yet. He doesn't know that, but we do, and it's exciting to see those pieces off it. But how, how did, you know, when, when all of Canaan is filled with the enemies of God, what, what started, how did, how did, those enemies of God start to get moved out because I'm sure that they never once thought that, yeah, this was going to happen. No one's going to move us out of here. Certainly not him. But then you read in Joshua, you read how the big military, the militant Joshua, you know, strong, and it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and he is, he sends his spies out, and he, he is the conqueror, and he goes to Jericho, the first city, the first city that they start taking over. And, and he's getting his men lined up, and he's getting the ammunition ready, I'm sure, because this is going to be a fight. And God says to Joshua, you know, you don't need any ammunition. You don't need any weapons because um, all you need is a few trumpet players. But because, you know, this is where when you look at the people that God has chosen to show us, when they listened and obeyed and they did what God told them, even though it didn't make any sense, look what happened. Joshua moved the, the evil out of Canaan. I mean, not entirely. I mean, there was always enemies against Israel, and they would always try to come back and all that. But Joshua dared step out and start beginning to clean that area because God promised and said, your offspring will take over this land, and this will be the promised land. Well, what does it say? It says that he, he, he built an altar. He built an altar there to the Lord. I mean, okay. And then they moved on to another town from there. They went to a town called Bethel. And he made another altar to the Lord. And so I started to think about that. Why did they build altars? What did that signify? Why would they, you know, what did that mean? It had to be, you know, because at certain times, at the right time, they would build this altar and I found out, I found out, I can't, I can't wait to tell you because it's, it's so neat. They would build an altar after an experience or something, crisis, and they got through and they'd build this altar. And they would, like, all conjugate at the altar. And they, it's like there they met with God. They built the altar and then they would meet there and they met with God and then then what they would do next was they would offer a sacrifice for because when you meet with God you start to see where you have failed or where 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 you are in your position with God and and that altar after you meet with God you see yourself and before you know it you start confessing and repenting and I don't know how, when, when you meet with God, you can't help but see yourself. And then you get back into your rightful place. And then they would, after, after they would confess and repent and the blood sacrifice, then they would, they would make a, a commitment. They would recommit and say, 
I surrender myself back to you because usually it was for something that they had done and they veered off and they needed they they watch God intervene and they build this altar and in this case you know Abram is saying this is so far beyond my comprehensions and you're 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 moving us right from the center of this Canaan area and you're showing us and so we're meeting with you God we realize our place we are very unworthy we confess and repent and and we know and we accept that you promised to forgive and we surrender ourselves to you let you use us and then after you do that, then it's the time of worship and praise. I thought, wow, there was so much more to this altar building than what I thought. And then I thought to myself, I thought, oh, man, you know, we don't, we don't build altars anymore. But what do we have that, that maybe we could we could just see that it means the very same. And I'm thinking, there it is. You know, to be able to think that that cross, we go to the cross. Yes, we go to the cross for our salvation. But if you think that's the only time that that cross is necessary, I'm thinking that is our today altar we go to the cross because what, you know, we, we might have, um, it, we're hit, hitting a wall or we, we've got a crisis. And I mean, this is, you know, after salvation and that, but why would I need to go to the cross again? Well, because, you know, self gets in the way so much. And we're going to see it in verse, the start of verse 10 of what can happen if you are not in tune with that cross and you go to that cross many times. And I thought, I can say, take those four things, those four same things. When life overpowers me, if it just plain is overcoming, and I think I just, I, or a decision that I have to make, or a crisis, or a wall that I'm hitting, and, and you just I go to the cross. And you meet God there, and there is a power. That's what we're saying that tonight. We're saying learning to lean on Jesus. You go to the cross, and you lean on that cross, and you lean on the Savior who was saying, I was waiting for you to come. I know you were in such a state, but you had to choose. But when you come, you almost see him beckoning you, and then you lean on him, and you find you have more power than you ever dreamed. You meet with God, but then when you meet with a God like that who is so willing to take you just as you are again and again and again, then you start, you start seeing yourself. You can't help but see yourself. And then he, he's, I think the Lord rejoices then because he said, good, you're getting back in your proper place. You, you see and you confess and you repent and you know the verse. I mean, he says, you know the verse that if, you're, uh, if you confess and repent, that I'll be faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you. And then after you are cleansed again and brought back to your proper place, I mean, then don't you want to say, I don't, I don't want to hit that wall like that again. I, I surrender to you. I recommit again. I want, I want to be able to take the time and that, that is needed to devote to you. I want you top priority. I want you, God, in my life instead of me. And you can just about imagine God said, and this is where I want you. And then when, when you know that you've been restored and that he is there and he will never leave you, and, but he gives us choices and he sometimes says, you think you're smarter than me? Well, then go hang yourself. You know? But then you come meagerly to the cross and you meet him there and you repent and, and, and then be restored as you surrender back to him. And then you praise and you worship him for who he is. I don't know, maybe that's a stretch, but I saw, when I saw that Abram built altars in these cities, and I thought, come on, what did they do that for? And then when they discovered what they did it for, I thought, 
Yeah, that is so what the cross does for us. Once for salvation, but many, many times for restoration. So there he built an altar to the Lord in Bethel, and he called on the name of the Lord, and then Abram set out again and continued toward Negev. Now, this whole thing about the tent, did you see that? He pitched his tent. <laughs> when, I'm thinking of Sarah. I'm thinking of myself a little bit. She is used to, she is used to, like in, in, in Ur, the Chaldeans, they were so wealthy there that most of the people that lived there had homes with at least 10 rooms. Now she's living in a tent, and she is never going to live in a home again. Like I said, she is this. So this tent thing, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we have campers here that just love to tent, and I don't mean to offend you. I really don't, but it is not my thing. One time, one time we, we tented. When I was a little girl with my two brothers, my mom, we went with our neighbors. They just said, oh, there's nothing like it. You will just love it. It's so good for kids. You know, this is 60-some years ago, so, you know, the tents aren't like the tents of today. So, anyway, you know, my mom's so fussy, and I can't even imagine her doing this, but we did. But that night, we're in this tent, and it just pours, and it is just a mud mess. And, and so my mom, in the middle of the night, I'll never forget it, she had the three of us kids. We had a pick up everything. It was, everything was drenched wet. We walked out in the rain and we plunked all that wet stuff in the trunk. We got in the car and I'll never forget my, my fussy Dutch mom, Sam. Never again. <laughs> and so that was, that was our tinting experience. So now I probably don't have the best, you know, opinion of tinting, but, but yet I think that it did remind me of what a tent really is. It, it's, it's never meant to be a, a, a dwelling, a hard dwelling. I think it's like, that's why the Bible says that we live in a tent. Our bodies are like tents because it's never meant to be something that we stay in all forever because we're not home. When, when, when you're tenting, you're just moving from place to place. It's a temporary, but your destination is, you do have a destination. Do you remember that old song, A Pilgrim Was I in a Wandering? In the cold night of sin I did roam, but Jesus the kind shepherd found me, and now I'm on my way home. Yeah, a pilgrim, a pilgrim. It, you are, you're traveling with a destination in mind. And, and the Bible says that we're going to be living in a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And Jesus says, don't get so troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am there, you may be also. And it didn't say tent, did it? It said mansion or rooms, or whatever version, but I'm thinking, because we're home. When we get there, we're home. And another song that I used to sing, loved it, said, going home, I'm going home, and nothing can hold me here, because I've caught a glimpse of my heavenly land. Praise God, I'm going home. That's home. This body we're living, it's a tent temporary dwelling. This world that we live in right now, temporary. We're going home. We're heading to the promised land. And I think of Abram and Sarai, you know, they don't realize it yet, but they are tenting it all the way to the promised land. That's there. Eventually, their offspring will land in the promised land. I think for you and I, too, we are heading to the promised land. So, now, 
loved it. Didn't you love those first nine verses? I learned so much. And it says, and there he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. And then they set out and continued toward Negev. And, and so they're, they're on the move. But now there was a famine. This, this kind of reminded me of our study of Noah. You know, I loved it when we studied Genesis 6, 7, and 8. I mean, Noah walked with God, and he too was able to do the impossible. You know, when God said, build this barge of, you know, 450 feet long. I mean, he, okay, you know, he, when he walked with God, what you're able to do, the power, when you're leaning on him, the power that you're given it's unexplainable, but the, the second you start pulling away from God and you think you can handle it when self gets in the way, and I, I, I look at those first nine verses and I just wish I could cut out this, this verse 10 and on. I wish I could cut it out. I wish I didn't have to study Genesis 9 can't cut it out. Now when you do verse by verse, you can't cut it out. And oh, I am discovering, and I hope you are too, we, we need these portions of scripture because they're sinners and they make mistakes. And, and we've got to learn from this because we're just like them. But look what happened. Because, you know, I just want to pull my hair out sometime when I look at this. But then I think I'm reminded of the story where Jesus says, well, you know, I know you're ready to pick up a couple stones to throw, but, you know, you better take a look at yourself. So, yeah, he, there's a famine in the land. And it's not wrong that Abram was concerned about his, his wife and his, his nephew and their, their animals. I mean, you know, he didn't want him to starve. But you want to say, Abram, think, what did God just tell you? You're going to be a great nation. You think you're going to, you think you're going to die now? God told you that this land was going to be yours. He didn't say Egypt was going to be your home, the promised land. This land, Canaan, was going to be the promised land. But without, see, he hit a wall, he hit a crisis. And instead of going to the Lord, and how often don't we do this? We just, oh, I got to fix this. I got to make this right. Somehow I got to work this out. And God was never in the picture. And that's why I couldn't help but think of the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. There was no such thing as prayer here. He never once went to the Lord and said, hey, you know, this doesn't quite gel. I mean, I, I have a feeling you, you don't intend for us to starve to death, but, but what do you want me to do? He didn't ask that. Oh, no, I'm going to Egypt, and I'm going to make sure I take care of my family, and I, 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 and he never once asked God. And there are times I, I'm convinced God says, okay, you think you're so smart? Oh, I, there's no doubt in my mind that Abram wished that he would have gone to the Lord before. The thing that kind of gets me is that he was smart enough to figure out a plan. So as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, he said to his wife, Sarah, now this, get this. I know what a beautiful woman you are. What a rat. Because he is buttering her up. Anybody, anytime you hear, oh, what a beautiful woman. He thinks if I say that to her, she'll be putting in my hands and do whatever I ask her to do. At least that's the way I read it. I know what a beautiful woman you are. And then he starts this sentence. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but will let you live. If, if I would have thought that there was even a little bit of, of him caring for Sarai, I'd give it to him. But I don't think there is. 
watch and see if you think he is just going to use her. He is scared to death that they're going to kill him. And I'm thinking, come on, Abraham, God just told you that you're going to be a great nation and your name will be great and he will bless you and all peoples on the earth would be blessed. I mean, how quick we forget God's promises. How quick we just falter into our own self and then think we've got to fix it and come up with these plans. And he says, say that you are my sister. And I I know I've heard all the sermons. Of course, yes, half-sister, you know. Yeah, that's a half-truth. But a half-truth is a full-fledged lie. Anytime it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, it's a lie. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it a half-truth. You can call it a little white lie. You can call it a fib. You can name it whatever you want. But it is a lie, and he knew it. See, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. I mean, he is using her. That's why I had you ask, I asked that question and I had you, you know, think about it. Like, did you ever wonder what was going on through Sarai's mind? I mean, Abram's calling all the shots here. And, and I know that, you know, yeah, he was probably a real charmer, you know, yeah, oh, you're so beautiful. But, but also, I don't think she had a whole lot to say either. But still, I mean, th- I can't even fathom when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And sure enough, when Pharaoh's officers or officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. Of course, stranger in town who looks like that, Pharaoh, who can get what he wants, whatever he wants. Abram knew. But what was it like? And she was taken into his palace. What was she feeling? I mean, she was, her husband did this. Instead of protecting her, he was protecting himself. But not only that, I mean, and then, and then of course, the next verse, you know, say, well, Pharaoh, you know, he, he gave him, you know, he paid for her. I mean, he treated Abram well for her sake. Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. I mean, he, he got a lot of stuff for her, but that is such, I mean, when Sarai went into the house of Pharaoh, into the palace, if she had been defiled by a pagan Gentile, If she, would have been, if she would have been defiled by this clan, this feral thing, this story, I mean, thumbs down, it would have been null and void. I mean, that's how big it was. And yet Abram, when self took over, and it's such a powerful thing, he let his wife go in there, not even considering that what they might do, or the long-range consequences if her womb had been defiled. But, I mean, don't, you don't even have to see the word grace in here. You just, you just can sense it. Undeserved favor. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. Now, somehow, the word got out, whether Sarah, I told him or whatever, but, you know, Pharaoh summoned Abram, and he knew that he was the culprit. And so he said, why, or what have you done to me? And why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, in other words, why did you lie? Why did you lie to me and say she was my sister so that I took her to be my wife? You saw, oh, what have you done? Why didn't you tell me? What? I mean, you're talking Pharaoh saying, answer me, why did you do something like this? 
I mean, I, I thought, this is so terrible because what, what could have happened to Sarah, Sarah and the Lord intervened, but now Pharaoh, is, is, it's got to be humiliating. It has to be humiliating for Abram who is probably professed that, you know, he was the believer of one God. I don't know. But I'm sure, you know, he it has this opportunity to live like it, and he blew it. And to me, that is the worst thing when we have opportunities and, in, and we're so concerned about ourselves or what someone's going to think of us or what we're going to look like. And we have our opportunity right before us. And instead, and then if somebody ever says, I can remember one time, let me just tell you this. I, I, when, I was, when I did a, a, a few times, I was saying for MetLife insurance for their big... Um, Oh, rah-rah things that they did and uh, around the country. And I would sing um, this patriotic song. that he, it, And I don't know where they got my name really or whatever, but I remember the first time that I was asked to do this. Um, I remember putting Tom on the phone and because and, I said, you know, we just need her to come. This was San Francisco. Uh, we just need her to come to sing one song. We just want her to come and start the, the whole convention, you know, with this. Uh, we've heard her sing this big patriotic medley. Will she come to San Francisco and sing this song? And, uh, you know, when I was on the phone, I'm thinking, go to San Francisco for one song. But then Tom got on the phone, and then Tom says, well, you know, you're going to take care of her. I mean, you know, doing all those details. And I bet I wasn't gone 30 hours. I flew there, and someone was there to pick me up. My, my name, he had my name on the card, and I said, yes, I'm Linnell Pierce, and I get in this huge limousine, and, and pff, this is wonderful. And then... Um, and then I take me to this magnificent place, and and uh, I go into rehearsal that night, and then I go to sing the next morning, and then I I carry my dress back to the, and there there's my driver, and he's in the same limousine ready to take me back to the airport, and then he's looking at me in the review mirror, and he says, "So you were the singer?" Huh? I said, "Yeah," and he said, uh, "What kind of music do you sing?" And I said, "Well, I sing gospel music." He looked at me. He was such a good-looking guy, let me tell you. He was so good-looking. And he said to me, he says, no, you can't possibly be a gospel singer. You're not the right color. That's what he told me. He thought a gospel singer, you know, had to be, you know, black. And, and I said, no, gospel. And then I thought, okay, Lord, show me one step at a time. I don't want to overdo this. I want to make sure that, you know, like, like what Peter said, you know, be ready with, with an answer when they ask you first. So I didn't want to be pushy, but he asked. What do, well, you know, I said, I sing gospel music. And then when he knew it wasn't a particular color, he said, well, what is gospel music? And I said, well, it's the best news you're ever going to hear, you know, and I thought, oh, Lord, is that good bait, you know, is he going to come back with anything, and, and he, he said, the best news, I just soon have some really good news today, and I said to him, I said, well, let me put it this way, you know, I said, I'm sure you know that, that when you were created, when God created you, I think he touched you twice because you were so good looking. I just told him that because he was. He was good looking and I was safe in the back seat, so it was no big deal. And and he had a laugh, you know, he laughed and but he, it was it kind of settled things down and we weren't and it was just easy talking and and I said, Well, you know, when God created you, you know, I said, but then Unfortunately, sin came into the world, and we started thinking we were smarter than God, and, and sin's just taken over. And I said, you know, if, if we're, I said, I'm the same way. If, if we were turned inside out without a Savior, and this is the best news ever you're going to hear, without a Savior, you're going to remain black and yuck and with no hope and you know, I just kept saying that. He said, but with a Savior, he said, we have Jesus, and he died on a cross, and his blood was shed, and he cleansed all that black, and now we are whiter than snow. That's the best news. We are, instead of going to hell, we're going to heaven. I said, I think that's pretty great news, don't you? And 
He was just listening. And we get to the airport. And I said to him, I said to him, I said, and no one can make that decision but you. I said, you've heard this story and you're never going to be able to say no one ever told you. I said, but I just want you to know that you have heard the best news you're ever going to hear. You have the choice and the chance right now to decide. It's up to you. And he went around, he, we were at the airport, and he, he got me out of the car. He was very gentlemanly and, you know, in his three-piece suit. And he took my hands, and he looked at me in the face, and he said, I don't think I'm ever going to be the same after today. And I said, no one ever is after they've met their Savior. And I don't know. I don't know what happened after that. I had to get going, but he knew he was presented with the gospel. Well, you know, from from then on, I, I thought, okay, Lord, this whole singing for MetLife. I think you 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 know you had this in mind. You you need this this guy needed to come to know Christ, and and you you had MetLife pay the bill so that I could I could somehow get to this guy. Well, my point in all this is that that when I kept singing for MetLife that year, then then. Um, one night, I was around with the presidents and the vice presidents of my life, and they, they, this, we were at rehearsal, and they, they said, we just, you know, you've been here a number of times now, and you're different than any other entertainer we've had. <laughs> and so um, they said, uh, we, we just want to know, we want to know why you are the way you are. You're so different. And so I thought, okay, here we go. You know, I just, you know, be ready with an answer when they ask you, and they did. They asked me, why am I different? And they, they started, they first started by saying, you know, it's because you're um, from the Midwest, and, you know, um, you come from a good family. And, and I said, yeah, all those, I come from a great family, and, and um, yeah, I'm a wholesome girl, and, you know, all those things. But I said, I would I would be wrong if I didn't tell you the reason I am the way I am is because of Jesus. And I knew this could be the end of this great gig. You know, I mean, I didn't know what, but I knew I had to tell the truth. He's the one that changed my life. And, and this is the whole point of why I even started this story, is that they looked at me and said, we knew you would say something like that. We knew you were going to say that. And I'm thinking, wonder if I hadn't. Wonder if I would have stepped back and thought, no, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want, you know, yep, I'm a wholesome, yep, I come from a good family, yep, I'm from the Midwest, and just left it. And I think this is what happened with, with Abram. I mean, he missed the greatest opportunity to tell the truth about a sovereign God. And yes, he, it wouldn't have been great if he would have said, and I made this horrendous mistake by lying and sending my wife. I can't even fathom that I sent my wife into you. I was so scared for my own life. Wouldn't it have been something if he just confessed that and admitted to Pharaoh? I, I let my sovereign, almighty God down when he told me this. What a story he could have told Pharaoh. I mean, this is the thing that I think is the worst part here. And how often don't we let the Lord down because we're so afraid of, of, and we're so consumed with self when he deserves, he deserves the full story. And, you know, just to tell you, you know, I sang many more times for MetLife, and every time I sang, it was like the next time I went, after I told them, you know, that Jesus changed my life, and that the next time I went saying, I had to do my patriotic medley, but then they said, do you know Amazing Grace? And I said, I do. I do know Amazing Grace. And they said, would you, would you open with that? Would you open with that? Well, I remember walking out there, 35,000 people. And it was, they, they put all the lights totally black. And I had a person who was in charge of getting me into my right spot. He handed me my microphone. They put one light on my face and I started a cappella. All of a sudden, 35,000 people went as quiet as you can imagine. And I started singing Amazing Grace. And by the time I got to when we'd been there 10,000 years, that place was hopping. 
And I don't think they even knew why. Because the power of God, even though it was MetLife Convention, and maybe many didn't even understand the power of God in that place, when you lean on Jesus, you find more power than you can ever imagine. And I didn't have a big symphony orchestra or anything. It was a cappella. And the roof of them almost came off that place. And then the next time I went saying for him, they said, no, we want the amazing grace, and we want the patriotic medley, but can you talk in between? I'm thinking, wow, this is great. I'm thinking, see, when, if you are willing to make a stand and you stand on his promises and you know what he's told you and, and what he'll, he'll be there and, and he wants to know, are you willing to listen to me and obey me? I put you in this place, you know. I, 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 I want to use you here, but are you too scared to be set apart? I'm thinking, I would have missed so much. I would have missed being able to tell this story that I think is just totally out of this world because it's so of him and not me. But I think, oh, man, you blew it, Abram. But I don't want to leave tonight. You know, I, I want to take this last minute here to say I don't want to leave you with that because I think, you know, because of God's unconditional love, he, wasn't, he isn't going to boot him. He's not saying, well, you really, you really blew it. You're right, you did, and so now you're done. I mean, aren't you glad that we have a God that doesn't say that? I think he tests, he tests us. And you know why he tests his children? He tests us because he wants to make sure that we see that we're, we're, we're not such great believers like we profess sometimes. I think he wants to test us to see that, you know what, you're so good at talking it, but you're not so good at living it. I think he just keeps testing us, and, and he wants to make sure that our faith is growing and maturing as much as we wish that we would get instant 100% faith that God speaks, I listen, and then I obey, and everything is hunky-dory, but you've got that You've got that self thing that's always in the way. But he is still working on us and working on us. He, this is what he's doing with Abram. This is what he's doing with, with you and I. He keeps testing us so that we can grow and mature in our faith. So that every time he tests us and we come through on the other side, we believe him a little more. We love him a little more. We then trust him a little more and we'll be more obedient I have a, a quote I found that I want to I leave with you. And it's so good about faith. It says, faith is not a mushroom that grows overnight in perfect damp soil. I mean, isn't that true? We would, this is what we'd love. We would love our faith to just, like I said, be so big and perfect. And that just overnight, you know, we... We are just exactly the way we're supposed to be, and we never see self again. And faith is not a mushroom that grows overnight in the perfect soil. But rather, faith, this is, how, this is what faith really is. It's, it's like an oak tree that grows and grows for over a thousand years under the blast of wind and rain and storms. That's how faith grows. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes work. It, takes, it, it just plain takes a while. It takes the day-by-day -day walk with him, a closer walk with him, a choosing to make him a priority. And it grows through the wind and the rain and the storms and the sufferings and the tests. That's when faith grows. That's what I think is happening here with Abram and Sarah. Oh, he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on us. But Abram had a test, and he did not get a very good grade, did he? But that's you and I, too. We don't always get good grades. Pardon me? 
Well, yeah, eventually. Yeah, he, we're, let's not go there yet. But he, yes, he doesn't learn completely. But, but hey, Joyce, that's a very good point because do we, I mean, sometimes don't you do the same thing over again? I know it, I know it. So anyway, just, just let's leave on that note tonight that we know that, yeah, our faith grows in time with our commitment to our walk with him. And thank goodness he doesn't give up on us. <laughs> Heavenly Father, oh, there's been so much in this lesson that we are just been confronted with. That's how much you love us. And that's how patient you are. And that's how gracious you are. And you, you come through. So thank you tonight for these, for these stories that, that um, are in in the word, not to just show us what happens when we listen and obey, but then to remind us when we think we can handle it ourselves and we don't even consider inviting you in to this scenario, then this is what happens. And we don't want to disappoint you. We don't want to be a bad witness for you. You deserve so much. So we, again, we know sometimes these lessons prick us a bit, but we are glad that you are willing to do that because we want to please you. We want to put a smile on your face. We want you so thrilled that we're your child, but we got a long way to go. So we will give you praise and glory tonight and thank you for our altar of the cross that we can come to and after... Uh, maybe a very difficult time after a life being overcoming us that we can go to the cross and just meet you there and be revitalized because you will forgive us and, and then we can recommit and surrender to you. Father, thank you for this cross that is just so, so available. Why not go to the cross instead of other crutches? when there's no other crutch that can do what that cross can do for us? Can we find anyone so faithful who will be there for whatever we need? No, we can't. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you've shown us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.